Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition, filmed on May 18th, Wednesday of 2016. And this show is going to be aired on May 23rd, which is a Monday of 2016. So join us as we journey into the mysterious world of the wild interest rate. That was that was my best David Attenborough impression. I'm, I'm so sorry, and I'm really glad that my job doesn't depend on that because it was bad. Anyway, my name is Gabby LaPera. Joining me on the phone to talk about the life cycle of interest rates is financial analyst John Maxfield. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, as always, Abby. So, to our listeners, just a quick note, if anything important happens between May 18th and May 23rd in the financial world, we are not going to cover it on May 23rd because the show is pre-filmed. I'm going to go camping, and I hope I don't die, and I'm very, very excited. So, this week on Industry Focus is Life Cycle Week. Uh, each show is going to talk about the life cycle of something important to that sector. So, for example, I believe healthcare is going to be talking about the life cycle of a drug. But on the Financials Edition, we are going to be talking about the life cycle of interest rates, which is something that fascinates both John and I. And we're very excited to talk about. Uh, just a quick reminder that you should not take anything in this episode as gospel truth, as a prediction of the future, because we can't know what the Fed is going to do with the interest rate. No one can know that. But if we did, we would make a lot of money, and you probably would never hear us again. Um, so, let me set the scene with a chart from the Federal Reserve. The chart uh, starts back in the 1950s and leads into today to the 2016. And the chart is a chart of what interest rates look like in the United States. It's the 10-year Treasury constant maturity rate, which is, um, and it looks. Beautiful, right? It looks it looks like an almost perfect idea of what you would think of when you look at a mountain, right? Like you have like this nice little ascent. It looks fairly steep, especially once you hit the 1970s, and it peaks in 1982, and then you start to have this really sharp decline until you get to today. So back in 82, uh, interest rates spiked around 15, 16ish percent, and now they're around zero percent, which is about where the chart started, a little bit lower. And the thing about interest rates, like we said, is that they're a cycle. And where the interest rates are today is that they're very similar to where they were during the Great Depression. Correct, John? That's right. That's exactly right. So after the Great Depression, they dropped around zero percent. They're around zero percent today. So they're around the same point. And and, and to your, to kind of the the, way, the point that you're making, Gabby, this is really the macro cycle uh, for the financial sector it, it, uh, that above all other macro cycles over the past 100 years. Right. So we're going to be talking about this cycle of the life cycle in particular. But the thing with interest rates is that they always do this, right? They have these troughs and these peaks. Um, and before we had central banking, the troughs and peaks were a lot closer to each other, but it always comes full circle. And you always end up with what you had before at some point. Maybe it doesn't look exactly the same, but it's basically the same things that are happening. That's exactly right. I mean, you you have interest rates are they they work cyclically, right? They work, you know, they're supposed to work, you know, uh, you know, uh, counter cyclically to the actual business cycle. As things are going really well, interest rates are supposed to go up. As as things you know start to turn down, interest rates are supposed to go down. Um, so yeah, so interest rates inherently are cyclical. Now there are really big you know cycles in interest rates, which the cycle we're talking about now is a really huge cycle. This is the cycle that starts in basically the 1930s and ends today. It goes zero, ba- basically zero percent to zero percent 
are the are the beginning and finishing points. But right in the middle, and to Gabby's point, it almost looks like a perfect peak. Right in the middle of that, in 1982, interest rates had shot up to darn near 20%, depending on whether you're looking at short-term interest rates or long-term interest rates, before then falling back down over the past 37 years to where they are today. Right. And so, with interest rates, interest rates affect a lot of aspects of the economy. Um, and one of the most important things that it does is that it affects whether people are investing in bonds or in stocks. Right, so um, bonds—they are basically a guaranteed source of income that you can buy from the government, that you can buy from your local government, even from corporations. And as long as they're not junk bonds, it's basically a guaranteed flow of, of income. And when interest rates are high, the bond's yield is pegged to the interest rate. So when interest rates are high, you're going to get a lot of people investing in bonds because the yield on the bonds is so good. But when interest rates drop down low, bonds become significantly less attractive because the yields are a lot lower. So, people migrate over to the stock market, which, while riskier, offers the opportunity for much higher yields on your investment. Yeah, that's exactly right. There is a direct relationship between interest rates and the yield on bonds. In fact, those are, in many respects, one in the same, particularly when you're talking about government bonds. But to back the story up just a little bit, so the question is twofold. First, why did interest rates go from 0% right up to like 20%, spike at near 20% in, in 1982, and then why did they then fall back down to 0% since? So if you look at that, that initial period from the 1930s to 1982, what we saw was that um, you know, the Federal Reserve was really just coming into, still coming into form. We are coming out of uh, the World War II, all these different things, and we are going into new wars, Korea, Vietnam. Well, that caused the Federal Reserve to spend a lot of money. It's called deficit financing. And anytime you have deficit financing, that is one of the triggers for inflation. You also have the baby boomer generation, right? They come, you know, their parents come back, they have babies, come back from uh, World War II, they have ba- all these babies. These babies get extremely rich, right? By the 1980s, they're spending all this money. Consumer expenditures, they also fuel inflation. The other thing that fuels inflation were those, and we've talked about this on the show in the past, there were two oil shocks in the 1970s where oil prices went up. I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but I mean, it went from something like, you know, 10 cents a gallon to something like, you know, whatever it was, a buck 80 a gallon. I, do not quote me on those statistics, but I'm just <laughs> sharing those to demonstrate the magnitude of the increase. Well, all those things factored into very high inflation in the late 1970s and early 1980s. So the reason that interest rates then increased so much was that the Federal Reserve came in to stop inflation by increasing interest rates. So that is what that steep climb up into 1982 was caused by. So let's take a like take a brief pause and explain to listeners what inflation is and why the federal government would want to halt it in the first place. Yeah, that is actually a great <laughs> question, Gabby. I'm glad you I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. So inflation is when the price of goods increases because more people are chasing after the same quantity of goods. So let's say with corn, for example, right? Well, if the demand for corn goes way up, but the supply of corn stays the same. Well, the price is going to go way up. So that's inflation. And the reason that demand would go way up in this situation is because the federal government is pouring money into the economy as a result 
of deficits, a fiscal policy that's uh, based on deficit spending. Right. And also, and also the Federal Reserve is pouring money into the economy, too, as a result of, uh, of loose monetary policy. So what this would mean for the individual is basically you don't get as much bang for your buck. Right. You maybe your, your corn cost a dollar before now it costs you five dollars to buy corn just because the, the dollar isn't as valuable as it once was. And it's in the right. federal government's best interest to curb this because it has effects on its global economic policy as well. And it also um, when you have rampant inflation, when you have out of control inflation, you basically have Germany post World War Two, where you basically needed a wheelbarrow <laughs> to buy a stick of butter. A wheelbarrow full That's of money. True. People were literally That's... using money to wallpaper their houses because it was so worthless. So that's why it's in the government's best interest to curb inflation. That being said, inflation, a little bit of inflation is to be expected and normal. We don't want to kill inflation entirely. Right. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with a little bit of inflation, but there's a problem when you have a lot of inflation because one of the things that that causes is it causes uh, rapid declines in the value of the dollar. And when you are basically the financial center of the world and you want to attract capital into the United States economy, you want our um, the, the U.S. dollar to be relatively stable in order to attract those funds in. So very rapid inflation is not a good thing at all. But a little bit of inflation, your 2 to 3%, which is right, right around what the Federal Reserve is targeting right now, that is a sign of a healthy economy because it's growing. Correct. So, between 1971 and 1972, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on with the United States fiscal policy. Do you want to fill us in on that? Yeah. So this is this is during the federal. This is during the Nixon administration, and one of the things that the Federal Reserve did is it was um, very. Uh, I don't know what the <laughs> the right word would be to you to describe this. Very friendly towards the uh, presidential administration in that it opened up kind of the, the, the floodgates of money to make the economy look better than it actually was in order to help um, Nixon's reelection camp. You know, this is kind of the story. This is the narrative that is, is kind of told about the Federal Reserve. Um, it opened up kind of the, the spigots on money in order to help uh, President Nixon get reelected. Right. So what this means for the chart that we're looking at is that it, it explains why there's this sudden increase on the interest rates as we head into the 70s, because the Federal Reserve is trying to help Nixon. We also have these shocks from the oil, um, and it, it's just kind of slowly bumping up. Even though you see like a couple little dips and stuff, it's just bumping up, up and up and up until we get to the 80s. And other stuff's also going on, right? Like John mentioned, we have um, deficit spending because of the Korean War and the Vietnam War. I don't know if we'd mentioned that yet, but there is deficit spending going on for the Korean War and Vietnam War. The governments almost always have deficit spending when wars go because that's how you finance war. Yeah, and keep in mind that also during the Nixon administration, we came off the gold standard, right? And the gold standard, because you're tying your currency to the actual physical amount of gold that you hold, it, it, it puts a cap on how much you can increase the money supply and the, the size of the money supply is directly related to inflation, or it can be correlate into inflation. And so when we came off the gold standard during that time period as well, that also kind of facilitated uh, 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 the, that rapid inflation. Right. Um, so deficit spending, like we were talking about with the Vietnam and Korean War, do you want to explain why that would help push up the inflation rate or the interest sure. rate? 
Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you think about, you, you kind of have to filter all this through the law of economics. So when the government spends, so when the government spends a lot of money and it's borrowing money in order to do that, it's basically uh, just boosting the size of the economy through debt. Just like if a company, right, were to go out and borrow a bunch of money and then have this insane growth, you'd look at it and you'd be like, well, the reason they were able to have insane growth is because they borrowed all this money and invested it, right? Well, that's the exact same thing. And when you have rapid growth and you don't have, you know, and, 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 you know rapid growth in demand from additional government spending, so they're, they're spending all this money, people have bigger paychecks, more paychecks, right? Well, if the supply of goods is not able, able to catch up, keep up with the increase in demand, that's when your inflation is going to come about. Right. And then the other reason that interest rates were starting to spike around the late 70s, early 80s is because uh, the baby boomer generation was in their 30s and 40s now, and they were bringing home big paychecks. And this is the biggest generation in America ever at the time. Right. So they're spending a lot more money. Yeah. I mean, you had literally it was like a perfect storm for inflation between monetary policy fiscal policy, demographics with the baby boomer generation, and then breaking off the gold standard. And that is the reason that inflation went up to like 18% in the late 70s and early 1980s. Right. So how does the inflation connect with the interest rates? So, so yeah, so, so, that, so you're, basically what you're asking is, why did, inter, why did you know, interest rates and inflation then drop off dramatically after 1982? And the reason for that is that what the Federal Reserve will do in the situation of when it wants to curb inflation, it will dramatically increase, increase interest rates. Because if you dramatically increase interest rates, you're going to increase the cost of debt. And if you increase the cost of debt, you're going to slow down economic growth, right? Because companies aren't going to be able to, be able to uh, afford to go out and borrow as much and to grow. And even if they didn't borrow more, the cost of what their current, their, the, the cost to service their debt, their current debt, potentially could go up, particularly if it's if it's not fixed rate debt, which most companies don't, you know, when, when banks make loans to companies, they often use variable rate loans. Um, so that is really that the reason that uh, when you can ink the reason that higher uh, interest rates boosted by the Federal Reserve will slow down inflation. Right. So basically, the Fed was uh, raising interest rates as a check on inflation that was occurring so rapidly in the 70s. Um, and that's why it peaks in the in the 80s. So what happens is when the Fed starts to cut interest rates, a, a couple things happen. Um, going back to what I said earlier about the bonds, that's that's one of the things that happened. That's why you have such a big bull market in the 80s, like a phenomenally amazing bull market because people are dumping their bonds and going into the stock market. Right. I mean, so we, there's a couple of different things that go on after 1982. The first is that, to your point, 1982. Uh, mark the first year in really an epic bull market in equities in the United States that didn't stop. I mean, it was interrupted here and there, like 1987. There is a, there is a shock. Uh, There's a rest, recession in the early 1990s. But really, that bull market didn't end until the technology bubble burst in 2000. And so, one, so the question is, is, is the relationship between the declining interest rate environment and equity prices? And I'm sure we'll get to that, and there absolutely is. And the other thing that you saw is that the United States economy grew very rapidly through the 80s and the 90s. And that, too, is directly related to interest rates, the declining interest rate environment. So let's talk about companies and interest rates first. So as you mentioned earlier, when interest rates are high, uh, it's more expensive for companies to finance their debt. 
and it's more expensive for consumers to finance their debt. So when interest rates drop, companies are excited. They can get uh, loans. They can leverage themselves out much more cheaply um, in order to expand. Right, and 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 if you're able to expand, and if you're able to do that really inexpensively because debt doesn't cost very much. But well, then your profits are going to go way up, right? And so if you look at the S&P 500, it went from 112, okay, in 1982, all the way up to 1,500 uh, at the end of the, at the end of that cycle in, in in 2000, and that was largely because you had people switching out of bonds and into stocks, and also because companies were just making so much more money that the valuation of their shares was going up. And the third thing to keep in mind in terms of the relationship between interest rates and equity prices. Is that when equity when institutional investors sit down and figure out the valuation on equity prices, they use these things called discounted free cash flow models. And these discounted free cash flow models, basically what they do is they look into the future of a company and they say, you know, how much free cash flow is this company gonna make over whatever it is, the next 10 years? And then they give they discount that backwards to a present day valuation. But when they're developing that present day valuation and they're discounting it backwards, it's interest rates that they use as the discount rate. And just it just so happens to work out that higher interest rates will, will lead to a lower present net present valuation, whereas lower interest rates will have the exact opposite effect. So as interest rates are coming down, you're seeing the valuation models on equities show that equity the value of current the present value of equities is going up. Yeah, absolutely. And cheap debt is not just for companies, right? It's also for individual consumers. Um, you'll see if you look at another chart that. I also have here in front of me uh, the average amount of debt relative to disposable income is two times higher than it was in the 80s, and that's basically mostly due to the fact that it's so much cheaper to get a loan. Yeah, I mean it's due to the yes, I mean the reason that consumer debt has increased so much, at least in my opinion, I think that this is probably you know <laughs> largely based in fact. I, I think uh, is because debt is cheap. And the the reason, and then what happened is when debt got cheap, then banks and other type of creditors came up with new products that made it easier for people to borrow. So you had all of these things that dramatically increased consumer expenditures um, because interest rates are going down as well. Right. So economies are expanding, consumer debt is expanding, and the uh, the the economy is expanding as well. Um, and this is because GDP growth is tied to capital. Right, which you raise via debt. Right, right, and so GDP growth is tied to capital. So if you increase capital, which is the, another name for capital, is debt. Right, <laughs> you, ne- you necessarily increase GDP. Another way to think about this is that look, if people are going out and getting more and more debt to buy cars and to buy houses and to buy whatever it is, use credit cards, they're going to be spending a lot more money. And the United States economy, seventy percent of GDP is tied to consumer expenditures. So if you're giving consumers the you know more purchasing power by making to debt available to them and not only debt available to them but cheap debt increasingly cheaper debt over the years available to them well you're going to increase your consumer expenditures and in a country where 70% gdp like i just said is consumer expenditures you're thereby going to directly going to be increasing the size of your gdp yeah and it's it's really it's really interesting you know what actually a question has just occurred to me which is um, if deficit spending increases inflation which in turn causes the Fed to increase the, uh, the interest rate. How come the interest rate hasn't risen despite the fact that we've basically been at war for 20-ish years now? Yeah. With a few, yeah, with a few breaks in between. 
Yeah, I love, basically, is what does they say? The, the, the title of that book was Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. Well, the, the, the thing is that when, you know, when you're talking about deficit spending, so you're, you're talking about basically why did deficit spending during the, the Korean War and the Vietnam lead to, you know, play into inflation, whereas deficit spending in, say, the Iraq War and the, the war in Afghanistan, why did those not lead to inflation? And the reason is that, you know, earlier, you know, in, the, in that earlier time period, the consumers were primed to increase their expenditures, right? Because you had the baby boomer generation growing up, you had debt, you know, you had the ability for people to go out and buy things, they're making more money, oh, the right. population is larger. And debt but, is so cheap right now because the interest rates were so low, right? Right. Well, yeah, when we're talking about on, on, the, on the way up, but on the way back down, uh -huh. today, the reason that this deficit spending is not having the impact on inflation that it did back in the 70s is because aggregate demand, so consumer demand has dropped. And the reason consumer demand has dropped is also related to debt. It's because after the financial crisis, people deleveraged. Right, you had all these people out there buying houses that they shouldn't be buying. They had all these people out there spending money on, on credit cards that they're probably overextending themselves. Now they're drawing themselves back. And as they deleverage, as they reduce their debt, they are thereby, I mean, it just directly translates into lower consumer purchases. So all your fiscal, your, your deficit spending right now, your fiscal stimulus right now, the only thing that is doing is basically offsetting the decline in consumer demand. Whereas before, you had both increasing consumer demand and deficit spending. Interesting. So let's talk about another thing that's directly related to our field and another thing that we both love, which is banks. Let's talk about how interest rates affect banks. I think that banks, banks are basically never happy with the interest rate, or at least they're never happy for long with the interest rate, right? Because as we said, uh, low interest rates, um, they that, that means that a lot more people are going to the bank and asking for money. And so that means that the volume of business that a bank is doing is a lot higher. But if, it, if interest rates stay low for a long time, banks aren't going to be happy because they're not going to be making nearly as much money on those loans because interest rates are low, correct? That's right. I mean, to, to put, to kind of give you a number to kind of hang your hat on here, if interest rates increased by 100 basis points, which means one percentage point, so if both short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates increased by one basis point, excuse me, 100 basis points, Bank of America would make $6 billion more a year in interest income. Oh, I can't say that on so that's the That's $1.5 billion more a quarter. And so then if you look at, well, how much is Bank of America making right now a quarter? And it's making like $2.5 billion, $3 billion, maybe $4 billion. So, I mean, you're talking like if, if interest rates increase, it is going to make, you know, 50% more money. Right. So, yeah. And so let's look at the flip side of this equation, right? So say interest rates are really high. That means banks are making more money on their loans but a lot fewer people are asking for loans because it's so expensive to get one. Yeah, so th there are a ton of moving pieces when you're talking about banks and interest rates. But to your point, because as, so let's say right now, we're looking at basically 0% interest rates right now, right? This is a horrible environment for banks to be in because banks make money by borrowing really, really cheaply from depositors. And oftentimes 
They don't pay any interest rate on the money that they borrow because that money is in checking accounts. And if money's in a checking account, oftentimes it doesn't pay any interest, as I'm sure listeners and Gabby and I can both appreciate <laughs> with our checking accounts right now. But higher interest, but higher interest rates for uh, their loans that they make. What, so the difference between what they charge out on their loans and what they pay on, on their to borrow is where banks make a lot of money. So as interest rates go up, but those demand deposits keep the cost of borrowing basically at zero, that's a very good thing. But with interest rates where they are at right now, there's a very small spread between long-term interest rates, which is the bank, basically the rate the banks lend out at, and short-term interest rates, which is basically the banks that, the rate the banks uh, pay at, is 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 uh, unprecedented, is compressed at an unprecedented level. Right, but there is there is banks are a little bit like Goldilocks. There is one exact scenario in which they're happy, and that scenario is long-term interest rates are high and short-term interest rates are low, and this right. happens this happens when we're on the brink of a recession. <laughs> Basically, and so the Fed, uh, the interest rates are still high from the good times before, but the Fed has put interest rates low to kind of cushion the fall that we're about to receive. So banks are happy for about a year, and then we're in a recession, and people don't want loans anymore. Right. Yeah. And and the other problem is that so you have the Federal Reserve come in, drop interest rates, takes the long-term interest rates a while to catch up and then to, to decline at the same rate down down to a similar level as short-term interest rates. So in that time period, banks have a large spread that they make a lot that they that allows them to make a lot more money on their and their loan and securities portfolios. But the thing to keep in mind is that so that's a very good thing, right, for banks from a profitability perspective. But the problem is that as you're going into a recession, and as and then as the Federal Reserve drops its low uh, the interest rate down, one of the things that you're going to see at the same time is you're going to see default rates on loans tick up. So what you, bank is going to gain? To, to a large extent, in terms of the, the interest rate environment, it's going to lose uh, because of loan defaults. So to, to the point that you made at the very beginning of the, you know, bringing banks into the equation, the fact that they're basically never happy with the, uh, the interest rates, even when the interest rate, is perfect, interest rate environment is perfect for banks, they still have reasons to complain. Yeah. <laughs> they're a bunch of whiners is what they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let, let's go back to the to the main topic um, and kind of kind of to close our, our thoughts. Um, so interest rates, they have a very predictable ish cycle in on the macro level. What do you think are there any investor takeaways from this? Well, I would say that uh, First of all, it's not—it's actually not really predictable. Interest rates are extremely difficult to figure out, kind of like what direction they're going to go. And although I think where we're sitting right now, I think it is fair to say that interest rates have only two directions to go, as opposed to generally they have three. Generally, they could go up, down, or sideways. Now they can't go down, so unless you go in negative interest rate environment, but even a negative interest rate environment is not going to go down much further from from where it is today. So you've 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 basically made it so interest rates can only go you know sideways or up. And so when you think about you know what we were talking about at the beginning of the show about the relationship between equity prices and interest rates, and that equity prices benefit right as interest rates come down, you think well if we're staring at a future where interest rates either stay stable, which seems unlikely, but you never know for sure or more likely they're going to increase what does that mean for equity prices and so when i look at it i mean all my money is in equities so obviously like i'm not overly terrified of this but it certainly would lead you to conclude that equity prices will not increase um, at may not increase at the same rate over the next say few decades as they did between say 1982 and 2000 now 
something could come in, and this is something that Morgan Housel, uh, we, our, our beloved Morgan Housel, talks about all the time about how difficult it is, it, it, it is to predict things. But, you know, if that is the case, uh, certainly it would make, you know, equities less attractive, although I would still think that they are more attractive than bonds. So it's still, you know, the game that you want to play. Uh, it just may not be, you know, as, as lucrative um, as it once was. Thank you. This has been really interesting. I feel like I know a lot more about the life cycle of interest rates on a macro level. I feel like I understand why inflation and interest rates tie together, and I definitely understand how banks and interest rates work. I think that's a that's a good summary of everything we've talked about. Yeah, I think that covers it. All right. Any any last thoughts? That's it. I, Gabby, I think you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you're going camping for the first time, and and just so the listeners know. Not only is Gabby going camping for the first time, but she's going camping for a week. So she's just like diving right into it. So uh, I hope you have a great time uh, on your vacation. Thank you. Go big or go home is what I <laughs> don't usually say. Um, <laughs> but you will this time. <laughs> I will I will this time. Uh, so in closing, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus if you want me to send you those charts that we were looking at this week or if you have any other questions. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.